listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Well, good morning. It's wonderful to see you. Well, sort of, I come to you from the comfort of my own lounge room to your lounge room, but here we are. It has uh, been a while, but I am sharing today's message with you. I'm going to read from a beautiful passage in uh, John 21, and we're continuing with the series that Mark has already laid out for us, uh, which is to come back stronger. And the whole heartbeat with this series is acknowledging the significant days that we're in where tectonic plates are shifting all over the earth and that there is a, I guess, a divine, divine divine, moment in time where the Lord is wanting to do something with and in his church. And by that, I don't mean the people who believe in him and who have routines and turn up to services on Sunday. By that, I mean people whose lives are invigorated and reinvigorated by the very life of this resurrected Christ. And I was preparing for this message and um, really praying about what is it that you want to go after God, um, not you, God. (laughs) What is it that you're wanting to speak into? He just kept giving me this word shame. And as I looked into that, I, I got the sense that there are a series of people that have consciously or subconsciously disqualified themselves from being part of the next work of God that he's wanting to do and that he's setting the earth up for. And so that's what I want to go after today. I don't know whether you consciously feel that, whether you subconsciously feel that, or whether you're not in that boat at all. As the church, this is what I want to look at, and I want to allow, please, Jesus, to bring freedom to people in this very area. I'm not sure what your knowledge of shame is, although I'm sure I'm convinced you've experienced it. Uh, Brené Brown has probably one of the best quotes or definitions of what shame is. And she says that shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and unworthy of acceptance and belonging. It's the fear that something we've done or failed to do, an ideal that we've not lived up to or a goal that we've not accomplished makes us unworthy of connection makes us unworthy of connection. Shame can be individual. It can be your own personal sense of discord. It can be social. And we've all experienced that, uh, that sense of ostracizing or not fitting in. We've possibly also been perpetrators of that as all of us have our unconscious biases. But there's also spiritual shame. And I wonder if spiritual shame is the worst and that if that one's looked after, the other two can kind of look themselves after themselves. But spiritual shame is that deep-seated, gut-wrenching, there is something desperately wrong. It's a sense of terrible anxiety, a sense of terrible um, abandonment, rejection um, within the very fibre of your being. And that's the one I, I want to be speaking in today. To get to it, though, I want to speak into the life of Peter. Peter is one of the most common known disciples. Um, If you're not familiar with Peter, please read Matthew, Mark, Luke or John. They're they're books in the Bible that detail the disciples' lives as they follow Jesus. And you'll notice very quickly that Peter is the one that Jesus addresses the most. Peter is the one that Jesus rebukes the most. Peter is also the one that thinks it's his duty to reprove Jesus. Um, So he's a man of great gumption, um, but he's a really likable character. 
He uh, is the first person to believe that Jesus is the Christ and actually say that to him, which is a staggering and really significant moment in Jesus, uh, in Peter's life. From that confession, Jesus says on that confession and that knowledge, I'm going to build the church on that statement and that knowledge. And Peter would be the one to spear the charge or lead the charge. But he had that belief, but at the same time, he refused to believe that Jesus was going to suffer and die. Peter was the one that jumps out of the boat and walks out on water in his faith and zeal, but then is the one to quickly sink with doubt. He is the first with the sword in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's the um, first to walk on water, which I've just spoken about, but he runs straight to the empty tomb when the resurrection happens. He just has this impulsive confidence. Um, and whether that is you or not you, whether you're extroverted and assertive or, or not, what I realise and want to encourage with all of us is that Peter is really humanity and our propensities and our nature just magnified. And I wonder if Jesus uses the life of Peter as a mirror back to us about how we all are and how human nature functions as it has that mingling of pride and shame all at the same time. And he uses Peter in a really powerful way. And I believe he wants to use the story of Peter today to unlock some shame that is keeping us hidden um, or discounting ourselves um, to participate in something really exciting that the Lord wants to do. The first passage I want to look at is John 13. And John 13 is that story where it's the last night of Jesus on earth. He's having the Passover with his disciples. Uh, he has just had Judas disappear to do that great act of betrayal that we know about. And then we encounter this conversation as um, Judas uh, leaves. I'm going to start at verse 31 and then jump to verse 36. Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, You'll disown me three times. The Gospel of Matthew and Mark rephrase the I will lay down my life for you as even if everyone else falls away, I will never fall away. Even if everyone else falls away, I will never fall away. Bold, confident words from Peter. As that passage goes on. By the end of the evening, Peter has denied Jesus not just once and not just twice, but three times. They don't happen all in a row. So he has time to reconsider what he's just done. There's a couple of hours between the first time and the second time. But the second time he reaffirms it, I do not know this man. And by the third time, Matthew and Mark say, that he doesn't just deny Jesus, he calls down curses. I do not know the man. This is not a subtle deceit of a conniving serpent with Adam and Eve, which pummeled us all into a life of shame. This is a conscious, overt, I do not know him. When Luke tells the story, on his third denial, Jesus actually is shuffled past him by the soldiers. 
and Jesus looks into Peter's eyes. It's like their eyes lock and you read it and you feel it and you go, oh, Peter would have seen Jesus look right into his soul right then. And then the scripture tells us in Luke that he went out and wept bitterly. I cannot begin to imagine what that experience was like for Peter. And I'm not sure that there is a story of shame that can trump this particular passage or this particular story. That Peter, not just with a best friend that he knows intimately and who knows him intimately, he hasn't just betrayed a close person in his life. He has betrayed the very Messiah himself, the one who he saw would be the saviour of the entire world. And he has turned his back on all that salvation and all that promise and all that future. We see Peter goes on from here and he sees the resurrection. But reading between the lines, I see not a bold Peter, but a sheepish Peter, someone who is grateful that Jesus is risen again, but someone who has disqualified himself. Because how do we go in one evening from I will never leave you to complete denial? I don't know if, well, what your stories are. There's no doubt ones that you know about, and I have no doubt, being the spiritual beings that we are, that there is subconscious spiritual shame um, that we may not know of, and yet it shapes our life and our outlook. But the good news here is that Jesus knew this was going to happen. Jesus had already told him it would happen. So before he even could have the human will and inclination to act it out, Jesus had said, just so you know, by the end of this night, you're going to betray me three, time, three times. So that's good to know. There's something comforting in that. But also Jesus is not surprised that this is going to happen because Jesus knows the state of humanity. Jesus knows more than anybody that there is this chasm that separates us from the life we know that we're called to have and the life that we end up living he knows that there is this gap of separation, this gap of disconnection, the very definition of shame that we all live in. It's as if we're, we're here and we know the life we're meant to have is here, which is partly why the Jesus jostled for prime position. But there's this gap from, from here to here for us to get there. And, and we think that if I do the right things or I have the right gifts or the right personality, or if I make the right choices and don't ever stuff up, or I have the right habits or behaviours or rituals or practices or the right understanding of my personality or the right career or the right position or the right clothes, whatever it is, if I can just get this stuff right, that chasm's not going to be there anymore. And what Jesus does by this horrific betrayal of Peter is give you and I such a tremendous gift, and that is to show us really palpably that our natural self, our natural choice, personality, will, gifts, talents, position or lack thereof is not enough for us to be and to arrive and to live out of the very place that we cry out for. Ken Boa, speaking about this, has a great quote and he says, Our greatest human strengths, no matter what they are or aren't, will never be adequate for following Christ. What is your greatest natural strength? 
Do you have one? Personality, charm, discipline, creativity, organization, detail, intelligence, hospitality, service. Christ can use all these things. But if we suppose we will be able to follow and serve him because of our natural gifts, we had better prepare ourselves for a plunge like Peter's. Natural devotion and natural strength will always deny Jesus somewhere, sometime. Through the life of Peter, Jesus is showing us we don't cut it. We can't do it. Our natural strength can be used, but it's not enough to carry through the actual life and purpose that we know that we are called for. I want to go from here to John 21, which is the main passage I just want to unpack for us. And to get there, a bit of background, Peter's betrayed Jesus. Jesus has died. He has rose again. Jesus, uh, Peter witnesses the resurrection. He's excited. He runs to the tomb. But after Jesus appears, he actually goes back home. He goes back to Galilee and he goes back fishing. Now, this is really staggering because Jesus had said, Peter, on you, I'm going to build my, my church. So you're going to have a mission. You're going to participate with me as I roll out my new world order. But Peter is still marked so much by this shame. It's as if he has disqualified himself. And in disqualifying himself, he goes backwards to the life he had before he met Jesus. I don't know if you have disqualified yourself. If something has happened or something hasn't happened, that means of your own volition, your interpretation is you've gone backwards. That you don't necessarily want to be there, but it's the only place that you feel worthy to carry out. Peter does this. And so he has this night of fishing on the boat. A couple of other disciples are with him too. He's quite an influential leader. They seem to follow him. Even in his despair, they follow him. And they've had a really frustrating night of fishing. They have fished all night and not caught one fish. And at the end of that night, they see someone on the shore. And this just surprises me because it's Jesus, but they don't recognise him. Mark spoke about this last week. Why is it that when Jesus appears to them as the resurrected form, he's not recognised? It's because he looks completely different, because there's a new era, because there's a new world order, because of the defeat of death. Jesus is now bringing out down the cosmic reality, the reality of creation and heaven being restored to the reality on earth. They haven't seen this before, so they don't recognise it. They see this man on the shore and as they get closer, tired, frustrated from a night of failure, they see that it's Jesus and Peter jumps into the sea and he swims over to Jesus and he sees that Jesus has got fish. The very thing that they couldn't get, Jesus has got. And Jesus doesn't only have fish, but he's cooking it for them and he's making them breakfast. I Let's not just read on from there. Let's just pause for a moment that this Jesus loves food. We see that throughout all the Gospels. But in this moment, Jesus is wanting to meet Peter as he goes about his life, as he goes about his day. He wants to meet with him in the ordinary. And then they have this conversation, and I want to pick it up there. So it's from verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Pre-Jesus' resurrection, Peter is here trying desperately to get here and yet failing miserably. And then in the encounter of his deepest failure and his deepest shame, he goes back to fishing. But then Jesus meets him with a different reality, not a one on effort or merit or natural strength and ability, but with a resurrection reality. And what Jesus is doing here in the resurrection reality where there is no chasm anymore, there is no separation. The resurrection means that the shame is dealt with, the chasm is dealt with, anything that separates us, sin, death, evil, suffering. We are now in this resurrected Christ. Now, that's a bigger mystery for another day. Paul talks about this all the time. He mentions it over 89 times that we're now in Christ. And Paul beckons us to know this resurrected Christ because then we get to know this, not this. And he's reversing the shame and restoring Peter to the person he actually already was and that is the one that is not removed from the power and the communion and the connection of God but the one that has this communion with this God. This is what Jesus means when he says a branch separated from me cannot do anything, cannot produce fruit. It's also why he knows that we often have to fail or we have to hit rock bottom before we realise that we can turn around and, and come to this reality. Because also we're always trying to get over here. He's like, no, 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 it's over here, taking about turn and come this way. I've got a new life. This is the one that you're wired for and it's the resurrected life. You see, we can have belief and there's belief. And then there's this resurrection. And then later comes the Holy Spirit. That's a whole other story. But pre this encounter on the shore of Galilee, Peter believed. And belief is good. But belief is not enough. Belief is an external ascent to a reality, but it doesn't necessarily shape who we are, doesn't shape our sense of self or how we view the world or how we view each other, how we view God. It's a belief. Satan himself believes in Jesus and so it's not enough. Post-resurrection, Jesus is taking Peter and he's saying, let's encounter each other here. This is the life where I get to invigorate you. This is the life where I get to restore you. This is where you don't get natural gift and talent. This is where you get my power. And where we are in the window of time at the moment as we celebrate the Easter story and the calendar the church calendar throughout this year is we're here at this resurrection time and Jesus is wanting to meet us in the ordinary and gosh hasn't he made life ordinary he has stripped away all distraction on our behalf because he's wanting to do a personal work in each one of us that irrespective of past irrespective of anything we have or haven't done the resurrected Christ is wanting to meet 
us here and is wanting to do a deeply personal work. I feel like that's my testimony at the moment. I uh, had my sabbatical last year, as a lot of you know, and I don't know if you remember, but the very first message I spoke when I returned was on that passage about unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it doesn't produce a harvest. And um, good message, like, because it's the Bible and it's the story of the gospel and it's true. Um, But what happened after that to me personally was I'm all like, yeah, yeah, the harvest, let's get a harvest. But then the Lord, the resurrected Lord, the one who is real and is constantly at work, took me on a process of death, like I'm literally alive, but deep personal, emotional, relational and spiritual dying. And I don't actually have the words to explain to you the agony of what that was. Suffice to say, there was constant weeping that I couldn't stop. There was a lot of grieving. There was a lot of letting go. There was a lot of saying goodbye to natural talent and a lot of, um, yeah, I, I don't have the words enough to say it's probably one of the hardest things I have been through. But when I was hitting rock bottom, the gospel started to minister deeply to me. It's amazing how the gospel is most compelling when we feel the most inadequate. And I found myself in a night of prayer one night and I was crying out to God and I was trying to understand what was happening. And I got a picture. I don't always get them. Um, they often come when I'm not looking for them. Um, but in this, the space of, of me creating space, it came. And it was this picture of what I called Vapor Girl. And Vapor Girl was at a doorway and I had the impression it was heaven or the spiritual realm. And I could only just make her out. It was this sense of vapour and she was wafting by the door, wanting to come out but not being ready. Um, So I'm going to do something I've never done. I'm going to read to you from my personal journal because I think it explains it a lot more. And basically I had realised in a really confronting way a bunch of lies I had been believing. And so I I say in my journal here, I realise there's all these lies I'm believing that I'm not safe, I'm not loved. I will not be okay, I am alone, I am too much. I'm struck at how much that that insight penetrates. It's like the spirit has underlined it and brought it into the open outside of just the words. Without these things in my life that have been taken away, I don't have a sense of self to stand on. It's so irrational and I dare say I wouldn't believe it if it didn't hit me between the eyes so clearly that this is how I am. I see a little girl. It's another self. She's in there but she's almost like vapour and hidden. Not in the foreground. The one in the foreground is strong, clearly defined, astute, known. She has been firmly established. But who is this other girl? What is this spirit yet to be breathed on? Who is she? Where is she and how can she come alive? How and why was she left behind? She didn't feel safe to come to the fore. Why? Why hasn't she been ready to reveal herself? Why is she timid? Why is she waiting? What is she waiting for? I feel like Peter as I read this. Jesus, light of the world, who is this girl? Is this the girl known, known, loved, restored, redeemed, sanctified by you? Either way, she wants to be heard. So I see her standing 
gently waiting, almost wafting, ready to come out. Father, would you show me more? I wasn't expecting this. Ah, Holy Spirit, would you release her? Is this the new man? Maybe, or maybe it's parts of my identity made in your image that feel rejected and ashamed. Father God, would you please make me whole? Father God, would you please bring renewal to me? Ah, this is so annoying and I can even push stop record, but I'm going to keep going. Father, would you please make me whole? Oh, I've read that bit. Would you please restore me? Would you please give me new birth? Jesus, would you please reconceive me? And then I quote from Song of Songs. Now I will bring him back to the temple within where I was given new birth to the place of my conceiving. <sighs> you guys know that I'm a crier. I just thought if I was doing this at home, I'd be completely fine. My point here is that there was this vapor girl and I kept calling her vapor girl for the next few months and I would ask God, God, who is this? Who is this vapor girl? Who is she? Like, and why isn't she strong? As I as I wrote in that journal entry. And he took me on this process of, I guess, death and resurrection is the only way I can explain it. And this is our gospel, this is our story. Then a couple of weeks ago, I found myself in another time of prayer and I was just praying and I was worshipping and all of a sudden, Vapor Girl came back and I saw Vapor Girl and this time she had herself, wasn't wafting, had herself ready and Jesus himself crawled in to her and 10 months of a journey Jesus decided that he'd completed his work or he gave me the end of the story. And he said, Sarah, your self, your abilities or lack thereof, who you are, your life is just vapour. But when I come in and I bring my resurrection power and my resurrection life, that is when we can go somewhere. And this is the story of our gospel. This is our good news. The bottom line of the gospel is that most of us have to hit rock bottom before we even start our real spiritual journey. And if you're like me, you have to hit rock bottom multiple times. But the failure doesn't disqualify us or the shame or the whatever it is we've done to our, ourselves. The resurrection is what qualifies us. And so we see a Peter go from here, encountering the resurrected Lord with that new sense of life and vigour, not of his own volition, but by the Spirit's power. And we meet a very different Peter in Acts. We read a very different Peter who then kickstarts the church and you and I are here because of that transformation and that reinvigoration. And then you read 1 Peter and 2 Peter, books written by him, and you ministered to and you're amazed because God showed him it's not going to work this way. The only way it works is by meeting me, the resurrected Lord. And so for me and for you, 
as we are in this time of window, resurrection, don't take this lightly. This is not business as usual. There is a deeply personal work that he wants to do in each one of us. And would, would we have eyes to see him in the ordinary and have a gaze to look for him on the shore cooking us breakfast? Look for him in the ordinary. The other thing that is really important to highlight here, and it comes at the end of John 21, after Jesus has resurrected Peter's hope and the do you love me, so go and feed my sheep, is that once that happens, Jesus says, so follow me, Peter then turns to the other disciple being John. And he basically then says to Jesus, so what are you going to do with him? Like, this is what you've got for me. What are you going to do with him? And Jesus basically says, none of your business. Or C.S. Lewis would say, I'm only going to tell you your story. Peter, don't even think about what I'm going to do with John. You follow me. That my story is going to be completely different to your story. He is such a personal God, but he's the same father. And he wants to do that intimate work in each one of us. And then Peter would go on to say, at this intimate work means that me embracing the resurrected Christ in my life as he reveals himself to me and I walk forward in it and as you do it in your life and people all around the world do it, we become bricks in this temple, this cosmic temple a royal priesthood where God chooses to use the ordinary people who get to be shaped by this extraordinary story to minister to the world around him, the world around us that is getting more and more hungry and open and thirsty. And so please embrace this resurrected Christ who wants to be for you and what he's got for you. And so now I would be honoured to pray for all of us. And as I do so, I, I ask and pray, come Holy Spirit, to come and minister your truth amongst each one of us. Would you come and reveal this resurrected Christ in each of our lives? I pray against shame. And I thank you instead for the connection and the communion we get to have with you. And so would you reveal that to each one of us in a personal way? Jesus, I, I pray for those who have disqualified themselves or always thought other people can do it or other people are better. Jesus, would you breathe on those places and would you resurrect and create something new and bring purpose and quicken meaning in each one of your children. And Jesus, for those who feel like they're failed or they have to go back, have disqualified themselves and gone back fishing, would you meet them on the shores of their life? Would you encounter each and every one of us personally and reveal to us who you are and therefore the new life we have because of who you are. And so we call upon the power and the victory of your death and your resurrection. And we say we want to be a resurrected church in this world at this time to carry out your purposes. And we cannot do it, but through you we can. And so Jesus, would you come? <laughs>